The Palace of Glittering Delights contains spoilers for the topics discussed herein and sometimes contains salty language. I've warned you. Max Headroom is not remembered by me as the talking head talk show host, hawker of fizzy drinks, or ubiquitous pop culture presence of the 1980s. Rather, the star of the sublime, incredibly underrated, largely forgotten, but really rather wonderful, dystopian science fiction series of the same name. Designed to capitalise on the then burgeoning cyberpunk movement, William Gibson's Neuromancer had seen print only a few years earlier, Max Headroom offered up a science fiction vision unlike any seen on television before. Borrowing heavily from movies like Blade Runner and Brazil, Max Headroom made his debut as a telefilm for the then-new British network Channel 4. British science fiction has always tended to be grittier and more downbeat than its American counterpart. Witness the rebellious antics of Luke Skywalker and company compared to the similar fur offered up in Blake 7. So Max Headroom didn't seem all that out of place in the TV landscape of 1985. A landscape that saw a Doctor Who companion murdered by the Cybermen, the brutal death of many of the crew of the Liberator, and the black-as-coal demonstration of a post-nuclear fallout Britain seen in threads. The British telefilm, written by George Stone and Steve Roberts and directed by Annabel Jankel and Rocky Morton, was produced by Peter Rack and was an oddity on network television at that time. A moderately budgeted, intelligent piece of original science fiction, aimed squarely at a literate, youthful audience. In other words, Channel 4's main demographic. The telefilm was a massive success, launching the Max Headroom phenomenon, and if you want a bigger background on Max Headroom's legacy, I urge you to check out Toy Galaxy's YouTube video on the subject, because this isn't that. What this is, is a look at the little-known series that followed. So in 1986, a year or so after the British telefilm, the concept of the movie was transplanted from Channel 4 to a major American network, ABC. This, as you can imagine took some overhauling. As everyone who ever saw the dreadful UK version of The Golden Girls, or the awful US remake of Faulty Towers can attest, retooling something from one country to another takes some finesse. For every The Office, there's a red dwarf. It's therefore quite the surprise to note that the pilot from Max Headroom, entitled Blipverts, is an almost identical shot-for-shot remake of the British telefilm, but more polished and with a bigger budget. Steve Roberts was ported over to the US remake, but creators George Stone, Rocky Morton and Annabel Jankel are stiffed out of their creator credits on all but this initial segment. The plot remains the same, more or less. Edison Carter, played by Matt Frewer, is an idealistic and crusading television journalist in a world where TV is the be-all and end-all of popular culture. He is the host of the popular What I Want to Know show, a TV news investigative magazine show airing on Network 23. 
Carter is incredibly successful and syndicates globally. However, Carter runs afoul of his own network when his story about a man who spontaneously combusts whilst watching TV is pulled from the air during a live broadcast. Carter continues an off-book investigation with his person in the chair, Theora Jones. Carter's story leads him to uncover corruption at the highest levels of Network 23, and this in turn leads to an accident that nearly gets him killed, but instead births a new and unique creation. Max Headroom. When a TV or film is remade for another market, it's very unusual to see the same actors. So it was a surprise to see the lead roles both being portrayed by familiar faces. Matt Frewer reprised his role as Max, Edison Carter, and Amanda Pays returned as Theora Jones. Frewer was probably a lock. He knew the character and what the makeup routine entailed. But Pays was more of a surprise, albeit a welcome one. The opening episode, directed by Farhad Mann, from a script by Steve Roberts and Joe Gannon, is incredibly stylish for the time, and quite refreshing nowadays. It's a TV show, about a TV show, that embraces that it's a TV show, doesn't recoil from it. The first half is shot either through Carter's camera, simulating the omnipresent television screens, or in extreme close-up, making the story feel more personal. The photography is well done, with rain, lighting and a blue filter all being used to great effect, and the world-building and satire are deployed in equal measure. This is very definitely society of upper and lower class, with homeless people littering the streets, streets that have permanently switched on televisions, blurring at the homeless at all hours. Having an off-switch is a felony offence. The upper echelons of society all live in high-rise apartments, looking down upon the people they profess to represent. The satirical nature of television, the backbiting, the toadying, the jockeying for position is all exploited adroitly. Charles Rocket, David Addison's brother on Moonlighting, plays the head of the network, Ned Grossberg, and is wonderfully slimy. The kind of man who will sell his mother, brother and cat out for a larger percentage share of the audience. Model work is used to establish the city of the future, the location of which is never named. Our only on-screen indicator of a timeline is the caption 20 minutes into the future, which appears at the top of every episode in lieu of episode titles. Carter's boss at Network 23 is Murray McKenzie, played by Jeffrey Tambor. Murray was once a reporter like Carter and has his back. Although Murray does kill the offending story as ordered when the network heads order it so in the pilot episode. Carter is left high and dry by both Murray and his handler, Gorister. And what is this smoking gun of a story? Well, it's Blipverts, a revolutionary advertising delivery system that compresses a single ad into three seconds through quick edits and jump cuts. Sadly, this has the adverse effect of causing an overload of neural impulses in more sedentary people, the infirm, the unemployed, the elderly and the morbid couch potatoes, that in turn causes their brains to, well, explode. Blitverts, however, are incredibly lucrative, and Grossberg orders them continued and the story killed, along with Edison Carter. However, Bryce, played by Chris Young, a young prodigy and developer of the Blitvert system, has also been working on simulated animals, and when Carter is almost killed by Bryce, he manages to download Carter's memory and personality into his computer. 
the computer simulation becomes almost sentient, develops self-preservation, and, despite looking and sounding like Carter, becomes its own thing. A being named Max Headroom. The last thing he saw as Carter's head collided with a car park barrier. Here's Max gaining life. Max. Max. Max Headroom. Max Headroom. Max. Max. Max Headroom. All right, now what happened? I don't know. He keeps shifting his memory location. He? This is live and live and direct. What am I on here? What I want to know is identify station. Enter data now. Excellent. Uh, let's enter network 23. This is is live and direct network 23. Am I on air? I'll be damned. I'll be your pardon. Is that thing talking to me? Now he's talking to you. Well, say something back. Uh, hi, Max. Hi. Both of you. Welcome to Network 23. You want to check these ratings? I seem to have an audience of two. <laughs> this is fantastic. Hello, 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 and welcome to Network 23. Live and direct, it's Network 23. The network where two, 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 two is company and three is an audience. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, where does all this stuff come from, Bryce? The components of Carter's mind. But he's adding to it. He's learning, Mr. Grossberg. As the story proceeds, Carter is able to use Max's memory to gain a copy of the tape, which proves Blitverp's side effect. Something Carter saw, but couldn't film. Is it live, or is it Max Headroom? Carter's public broadcast brings down Grossberg's reign as head of Network 23. The fundamental flaw with this is that ratings are everything. And if the blitverps are killing the people who watch television the most, surely that will ultimately lead to a reduction in said ratings. A serious problem in an era where even the smallest ratings point drop is a cause for job losses. Still, Grossberg seemingly considers the losses worth it for the advertiser money. That being generated by the Tic Tac Corporation, a recurring advertiser seen throughout the series. The ABC version is an incredible first episode. Sure, it files all the rough edges off the characters from the British original, but I actually find this preferable to the Channel 4 version. There's a full subplot with a character named Blank Reg, played in the British telefilm by W. Mark and Shepard, that is excised from the US version. This helps keep the runtime to 48 minutes, and the result is a piece that moves at a rapid clip. The art department depicts a retro future, a canny move that means the show looks both dated and still relevant at the same time. The technology and on-screen graphics, mostly recycled from the Channel 4 telefilm, are still impressive, but Fiora uses chunky keyboards and black and white monitors. The clothes and cars are 40 chic, but the helicopters and technology is more futuristic. It was ahead of its time in this regard, beating out Dick Tracy and Batman by a number of years. The Blitverns aren't as violent as the UK version, but arguably not seeing somebody's head blow up is more effective than seeing it. The bleak overview of future society is offset by the comedy stylings of Max Headroom, who, for the most part, 
is genuinely funny. Hi, hi. No, this is not a blip, blip, blipvert. This is Max Hedrum on Network 23. And I, and, I, and I know that right now you're looking at me and you're thinking, wow, wow, he could become a star. So, so before you get the wrong idea about me, let me just say very humbly, you're right, I could. <laughs> I don't, don't want to be gloomy, gloomy, but what does the future hold? Some say, some say it holds the promise of a young olive branch, which, which, which means I might have to turn over a new leaf in the future. How can you tell when our network president is lying? His lips move. Head of the network, Ben Cheviot, is played by George Coe. Cheviot is seemingly the only network manager with a conscience. Upon learning Carter's evidence of Blipvert, Cheviot sells Grossberg out and allows Carter, Jones and Murray to broadcast the story. I don't think this was entirely altruistic. With Grossberg out of the way, Cheviot becomes the network controller. His less-than-benevolent nature is hinted at a few times, but his compounded in the opening credits were, presumably for monetary reasons, Cheviot is given all Grossberg's lines. As was the norm for the time, the opening credits were a saga cell explaining the basic premise of the series. I'm afraid our star reporter is going to have to disappear. Where does all this come from, Bryce? The components of Carter's mind. But he's adding to it. It's computer generated, whatever it is. It looks like Edison. People translated as data. Max. Two minds, but with one single memory. with the great pilot episode is that the creatives have to do it all over again a week later. So it was with Max, ordered to a series by ABC in December of 1986 for erring in March of 1987. A ridiculous turnaround time for a normal cop or lawyer show. A practical impossibility for an ambitious science fiction show. Six episodes erred in between March and May of 1987, as against all the odds, the show would make it to television screens across America. The first episode, Rakers, was written by Steve Roberts and James Crocker. Roberts would talk about how difficult it was to find writers for Max Headroom, a complicated comedic satire which resulted in him being credited on five of the first six first season episodes. Rakers delves into Theora's background, expands on her and Carter's relationship, and spoofs televised sports. Superboy's Lex Luthor, Sherman Howard, appears as a politician, Simon Peller, trying to secure the legal rights to the best new sport since Scumball. It's a take on Rollerball and the running man called Rakers, and is established as a new youth movement inspired by the skateboarding trend of yesteryear. Whilst Rakers is fun... After the innovative pilot, it's undeniably a step down. The 
the idea of sports becoming more and more violent in an attempt to bolster their appeal is an old idea, but one that never really came to pass. Sports have mostly become more regulated to secure the contestant's safety. The area in which backbiting, skullduggery and general nastiness has increased is in reality TV game shows, an area even Max Headroom couldn't predict. Body Banks follows on directly from the pilot. The scenes cut from the Channel 4 movie featuring blank reg resurface here, and the continuity follows so closely I have to wonder if this was originally supposed to err as episode 2. William Morgan Shepard is the third actor to port over from the Channel 4 film to the US remake, returning to his role as Reg. Blanks are people not on the grid or in the system, and may have been inspired by Buddy Blank, a similar concept in Jack Kirby's OMAC comic series. Or it may just be a coincidence. Reg is a punk who loves real books, real records and real baked beans. He's like the guy who runs your local record store who never subscribed to the CD revolution and can't abide downloads. Reg runs his own pirate TV network, Big Time TV, which runs music videos from the old days. He travels around in his motorhome with his companion, Dominique, played by Conchetta Tomai, avoiding being arrested for illegal broadcasting. This is a much better episode than Rakers, expanding on many of the elements introduced in the pilot, such as the zigzag food chain and the body banks. Originally set up to harvest dead bodies' organs, two unscrupulous harvesters, Marla and Bruegel, played by Joe Burns and Rick Ducommon, are taking in live bodies for a doctor's illegal practice. The doctor is at the behest of Plantagenet, a very rich man trying to gain organs for his ailing mother. Mr. Plantagenet has some dirt on Ben Cheviot and is blackmailing him because he wants the Max Headroom process as a backup for his mother, should the transplants fail. Plantagenet has real mother issues. Carter becomes involved in the story. A very funny B-plot sees Max also wanted by the Zigzag Corporation after the discontinuation of the Blitverts programme. Max, as you can imagine, isn't that enthused. Hi there, and welcome back to Network 23. Listen, listen. You can forget all that stuff about zigzags, burger packs. So don't go reaching for your old leather wallet. That's just what they taste like. Seriously, have you ever wondered why zigzag burgers come in plastic packs? Easy. Easy. Some of the plastic rubs off in the burger and doubles the nutritional value. Oh my God. Bryce, if you can't control him, get him off. Stop the thing now. Get him off. From New Zealand. They ever have any? I tried to warn you, you know. I can't make him stop unless he wants to. This is a really complex and very entertaining episode, delving into the world building, the desirable nature of being able to back up a person's memory to computer, and illegal body harvesting. There's pointed barbs aimed at fast food, and a populace being forced to go to backstreet doctors for their medical care when it becomes unaffordable. Big time TV is fun pirate version of MTV, and Morgan Shepard enlivens everything he's in. I'm still not convinced that Ben Shevitt is a good or even a nice guy. He's an opportunist and a money grabber and every bit as scummy as Grossberg, in his own way. This isn't a bad thing though. It's a change of pace in this era of television to have a morally ambiguous character, and a change from the caricatures painted in broad strokes or simplistically portrayed heavies that would normally be seen. Bryce Lynch, for example, is an odious scumbag in the Channel 4 telefilm. 
Whereas here, he's just an obnoxious teenager. Standards and practices must have been asleep at the wheel when they ran this episode, as it contained two obvious expletives. Edison Carter clearly says shit when his camera is stolen, and later, Network 23 director Mrs. Formby tells another board member to piss off, although the latter may not have been as well-known in America at that time. Calling the villain Plantagenet is an interesting allusion. The Plantagenets were English nobility and royalty, and ruled over a period of history with no middle ground between the rich and the poor. It was a violent era that inspired many workers' revolts. Plantagenet here is so rich as to be above the law. He's blackmailing others just to keep his mum alive. In a science fiction setting such as this one, one clearly showing a collapsed society. This is a bit on the nose, but I suppose it depends if you get the reference or not. It's like naming your character Lupus and then revealing he's a werewolf. Add to this, Marler and Bruegel perhaps being influenced by Burke and Her, the infamous murderers who also harvested real bodies, and you've got an episode that matches the pilot in terms of storytelling and ambition. Security Systems keeps up the good work. An investigation into who is taking over Security Systems Inc., the largest online security system in the world, leads to Carter being considered persona non grata, expunged from the system and framed for credit card fraud. A crime worse than murder. Carter ropes Theora, Bryce, Murray and Blank Reg into finding out who is attempting the hostile takeover and to clear his name. Along the way, Max romances the security system's computer, A7, voiced by Sally Stevens. You know, you know, your voice is really soft. Why have you penetrated my system? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be honest. I need something from you. Will it go any further? Madam, we've only just met. <laughs> it's been almost 3,000 milliseconds. You know, you know, you know me. Straight to the heart. Well, <laughs> I almost tripped over a little ar ar artery on the way. <laughs> I wonder, wonder, wonder if security guards ever hold a party. And if they do, do they let each other in? <laughs> right. You know, I've never been accessed like this before. I'll be gentle. <laughs> Again, the series delves into a concept well ahead of its time. In this case, that our online data can be exploited by companies to sell us things we don't need, know things we don't need them to know, and even sell that data on without our permission. In 1987, this was pretty revolutionary. There are some idiosyncrasies, such as everything being credit tubes, Murray paying in cash for the rickshaw ride. But overall, this is another top-notch installment with a cracking gag. When Edison is on the run, his show is preempted by a comedy show called Lumpy's Proletariat. Lumpen Proletariat, in Marxist terminology, is the unorganised and unpolitical lower orders of society who are just not interested in revolutionary advancement. War sees terrorist organisations step up their activity, coincidentally, as a freelance network programmer tries to sell the exclusive rights to the attacks to Network 23. It's a fun episode looking at war profiting. The abridged first season concluded with blanks. Sherman Howard returns and is excellent as slimy politician Simon Peller, bringing all the smarmy brought to Lex Luthor in Superboy. 
Simultaneously, all the networks are seeing their signals interrupted, requesting that all blanks who are being detained be released. Blanks are not tolerated by the system, being off the grid and therefore not watching TV. Blanks tackles fundamentalism, asking when your cause starts interfering with people's lives, is it time to rethink? Civil rights are also an undercurrent, and the series shows us, for the first time, that there is something between the very rich and privileged and the poor and downtrodden. It's a great episode of what was overall a magnificent season. Max Headroom would return for a second season of seven episodes, but the writing was on the wall. A wife of a network executive allegedly asked why he was allowing this show, a show that took the piss out of what he did for a living, to be allowed to err on his network. It was cancelled the next day, with only four of the seven episodes filmed erring. Of the three remaining, two erred in late-night filler slots, and one, grow bags, wasn't erred at all. In a classic Coles to Newcastle situation, Channel 4 erred all 13 episodes in one block in the summer of 1989. Likewise, Australia also screened all 13 episodes. The US finally saw the last episode in 1995, when the Sci-Fi Channel picked up the series for a full rerun. As a low-rated show, it revamped itself for season 2, with a new theme tune and new opening credits, but I didn't find these as pleasing as the Corey Lirios theme from season one. The season lost none of its satirical bite, though, with deities dealing with televangelists and Grossberg returns as the head of a rival network, providing a steady and recurring villain, for want of a better word, for Network 23 to deal with. The season credits were better edited, more slick, so for completeness and for your enjoyment, here they are. This is Edison Carter, coming to you very much live and direct on Network 23. Carter's the best-known reporter we have on the air. He satellites globally. Where does all this stuff come from, Bryce? The components of Carter's mind. Oh, my, Max, my, Max. People translate it as data. It's computer-generated, whatever it is. It looks like Edison. Max, Max Headroom. Max? He's a computer-generated person based on you. Two lines, but with one single number. Headroom was a delight, like discovering an old childhood toy that still had the firing projectile that nearly killed Cousin Bobby. Fond memories. We may not be addicted to television, as the series predicted, but we are just as addicted to screens of any kind, and the flighty nature of viewers and the increasingly reduced attention spans, as predicted in this show, have come to pass. Its set design and aesthetic was well done, and its satirical edge, sharp. Max Headroom's biggest downfall was that constantly being 20 minutes into the future meant that it was always ahead of its time.
Okay, shall we delve deep into the bulging sack of communication from you lovely people? 20 minutes into an uncertain future. Our first email tonight comes from Gene Hendricks. Hello there, Andy. Hello, Gene. These are the voyages of Superman. You know, it's not very often that someone covers my very first issue of Superman, but you did this episode. You see, I was a Marvel kid, for the most part. Oh, I watched Super Friends and the Christopher Reeve movies, but as far as reading went, it was pretty much all Marvel. That is, it was, until I got Action Comics Annual 2, with that amazing cover of Gladiator Superman. I have no remembrance of how I got this issue, but I have a sneaking suspicion that my grandfather got it from the newsagents when he bought this morning's paper and coffee. In any case, I completely see your criticisms of the book. After such a long and introspective storyline, someone would want a big 68-page action-packed comic, which is just what you didn't get. For me, however, being my first ever Superman book, this was perfect. I was able to get plenty of backstory on Krypton, who the post-crisis Superman was, and a really expansive world to discover. Reading this book, I wanted to know more about the DC Universe in general, and Superman in particular, and that led me down a long road of learning as much as I could about the post-crisis Man of Steel. And now that I sound like an advert from crisis to crisis, I'll leave it there. Thank you for another great episode. Gene, the Hammer Strikes, the Hammer Podcast, the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, Class 1000, T Public Store. Don't know what the latter is. Um, yeah, that's great. I... I I, I have read on. I have carried on reading Superman from the post-crisis era. And I'm rapidly approaching the day of the Krypton Man. And in context, uh, with the benefit of hindsight and seeing what they were setting up, Action Comics Annual 2 does work a lot better than it did when I covered it in that particular show. So I'm a lot more inclined to go with the goodwill towards it when you see where it was all leading to and it was leading somewhere very very interesting it has to be said the uh, superman creative team of that time were really planning ahead what they were doing and where their stories were going our second email tonight is from matt prather hey andrew hello matt much like yourself, I just read the new editions of Superman from the John Byrne era. I have Exile in my digital shopping cart, but haven't pulled the trigger as of yet. With the Man of Steel stories coming to an end with Superman offing the evil Kryptonians, I think I just need a breather. Death-dealing Clark being a cultural norm at this point. I don't know why, but nevertheless, I think I need it anyway. Spider-Man. Love me, Spider-Man. Who doesn't? I look forward to rereading this selection of comics. I recall most of the issues you covered, but you inspired a deep dive. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Matt Brother. P.S. The Mark Wade World's Finest offering doesn't suck so far. Uh, I've got the first four issues of that. I think I've only read issue one. Uh, I'm probably just going to plough through them all as it as it arrives. Um, in terms of comics, I recently got hold of the second Parker Martini edition by the late, great Darwin Cook. So I look forward to reading that real soon. There has been, you may have noticed... A bit of a gap between episodes here. Uh, I was suffering for a wee bout, sir. A wee bout of what? Of COVID. So I have not had a chance to record anything over that time. This, this episode I did today has been written for weeks. I just needed to get around to feeling well enough to do it. And also making sure my voice was 
back to where it was, even though it still sounds a little bit croaky to me. But maybe that's maybe I'm going to sound like Gavin Rossdale for the rest of my life, which would be no bad thing. Wish I looked like Gavin Rossdale. Wish I had Gavin Rossdale's money. That'd do, wouldn't it? Anyway, next time on a new episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights, I'm going back to Spider-Man. I am already working my way through the next batch of issues from the Len Wein Ross Andrew era. So I hope you'll join me for that. And everything's going to be okay. Well, between COVID having a resurgence and monkeypox and polio being rediscovered. Uh, it's a hell of a time to be alive, isn't it? Take care, everybody. I'll see you all real soon.